first pastor of PCF, and I reminded him of something that I used to do and haven't done for some time because of copyright issues, but I can do this. I can say, good morning, church. Yeah, see, you remember, those of you who were here would remember that Bill Sanders would always do that, where he would get up and say, good morning, church, and everybody would respond, good morning, Brother Bill. And so I just told uh, David that I'm the other Brother Bill, so. (laughs) And I'm glad to be that. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that illuminates your word in such a way that we can understand it, that we can grasp it, that we can attain to the things that are contained in it. We can uh, get glimpses of your truth, Father, even though there's many things we can't fully understand. We pray this morning that you would indeed illuminate your word and enable us, Father, to grab those things, to get a hold of those things that you desire for us to know. And Lord, that through all this you would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, people find a lot of things in the Bible that may or may not be there. I'm not just thinking of those people who take those verses out of context and teach things such as all Christians are supposed to be healthy and wealthy all the time. I'm not thinking of people like that. I'm thinking more of things like this. For example, who was the smartest man in the Bible? People find that sometimes. They see Abraham. He knew a lot. Larry, Is Larry Gregory here? These are the kind of jokes that Larry Gregory always has on the tip of his brain. And then which Bible character had no parents? Joshua, son of Nun. Right? Remember that? And then how about the, all the motor vehicles that are mentioned in the Bible? David's triumph was heard throughout the land. Sports car guy, apparently. And then, of course, there's the Honda because all the apostles were in one accord. I tell you what, I'm not really thinking of things like that. I'm thinking of something you may have never heard of before and never seen in Scripture. And it's consistent with a cultural craze that you probably have heard of, even if you've never participated in it. And I'm guessing that this is going to be a unique service here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and maybe across the land this morning, because yes, this morning, here at PCF, we're going to start a sermon by talking about zombies. Zombies. Now, zombies have captured the popular imagination in movies, in television, in books, and special events in really quite a remarkable way. Has anybody noticed that? That you can't turn on the TV without seeing a a zombie story, a television program, or a movie. Um, You can go into bookstores and see books related to zombies. It's especially popular among young adults. Some of the most popular TV programs now have a zombie theme. Even Christian book writers have gotten into this cultural craze as witnessed by books like this one, The Christian Zombie Killer's Handbook. Do you believe that? I'm sure none of you watch zombie movies, right? But in the interest of cultural relevance and doing the hard and dirty work so you don't have to do it, I have watched some zombie movies. And while many, if not most, of them have very little redeeming value, I must say that in the few that I've seen, I have found some themes consistent with a passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. And I see those skeptical faces out there, like how can we possibly find this in Scripture? If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to spend some time this morning looking at verses 1 through 10. 
But for starters, and in keeping with this morning's sermon title, Zombie Cure, let's just start with the first three verses. Paul writes to the Ephesians here, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you know that one of the most popular TV programs on today is called The Walking Dead? It's about zombies, folks. We see here in Ephesians that all of us were, by this definition, The Walking Dead, all of us were at one time zombies. It says quite clearly that we were dead. It also says that we walked. So we were the walking dead, weren't we? We were the living dead. It also says that we followed the course of this world and we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. If you've seen any zombie movies, you know that's what zombies do. Zombies are the walking dead, and there's a definite group think among zombies, right? Let's all chase the living, and let's consume their flesh, or better yet, their brains. But of course, in many but not all zombie movies, they're kind of slow moving. That's why zombies don't like fast food. They can't catch it. Before we take a closer look at this passage of Scripture, let me tell you a few plot points in two specific zombie movies that I've seen because they're among the things that are consistent with what Scripture tells us as we uh, consider what it means to be the walking dead. One of these movies is called I Am Legend. It stars Will Smith, whose character is now living pretty much alone among the zombies in New York. And after a zombie apocalypse has largely decimated the world, but he's a military viral researcher. He's a scientist, so he's trying to find a cure, not just for himself, but for anyone that has survived this plague. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending this movie, and I'm not saying that it's Christian in any sense, okay? But I'm going to ruin the ending for you if you've never seen it. And if you have any designs on seeing it at some point, hopefully you'll forget what I told you here. The movie ends with Will Smith sacrificing himself to preserve the cure that he thinks he's found after he's discovered that there's other survivors. So what we see from this is to cure zombies, to turn them from the walking dead and give them new life, it requires a sacrifice. At least in this film, it did. That's also the case in World War Z. That's another zombie movie. This one stars Brad Pitt. He's a special forces guy who's charged with finding the cure too. And again, humanity has been decimated, but there are pockets of survivors, of some aboard a ship at sea. So what he does is he travels the world and he's looking for a cure. And uh, he sacrifices himself at the end to prove that the cure that he thinks is real actually works. The point is, the zombies are unable to do anything at all to save themselves. It takes a sacrifice to save them, at least in these two zombie movies it does. They are, after all, dead. Even though they're still walking around, they're still wreaking havoc on the living. So, too, it is with all of us. 
Paul, writing to the Ephesians, tells us that apart from Christ, we were dead. He tells us some other disturbing things about those apart from Christ. He tells us that we followed hard after the ways of the world. Now, that's not a compliment, folks. The word translated here, world, is the Greek word cosmos, and it's used 186 times in the New Testament, and almost every time it's used, almost every time, it has an evil connotation. If we are without Christ in our lives, we are captive to the social and the value systems of this world. And any social and value system in the world is hostile to Christ. Zombies are hostile to those who are alive. They're trying to kill them. And in so doing, they're trying to make them zombies too. The world is hostile to those who are alive in Christ. The world would love to kill our faith and see us become just like them. Folks, the world is not our friend. We must be aware of that. And we must be aware of how much influence the world actually has on us. That's because, as Paul tells us, the world's values are the same values as the enemies of our souls. Here Paul tells the Ephesians what this being is. Paul describes the devil as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is described elsewhere in Scripture as the ruler of this world. We see that in John 12, 31. He's the prince of demons in Matthew 9, 34. And a scary title, he's the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Folks, when the world owns us, Satan owns us. When we are the walking dead, when we are apart from Christ, we belong to God's enemy. If that isn't a sobering thought to you, then I don't know what is. It's the devil who dominates and energizes the spiritually dead. Of course, we can't be like the old Flip Wilson character. Remember the comedian Flip Wilson, 60s and 70s? He had a character named Geraldine, and she always said, The devil made me do it. You remember Flip Wilson? If you do, you're really uh, dating yourself. That's because the dead are corrupted from within, too. So we can't always say the devil made me do it. Take, for example, the little girl who was disciplined by her mother for kicking her brother in the shins and then pulling his hair. Sally said her mother, why did you let the devil make you kick your little brother and pull his hair? And she answered, well, the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. (laughs) Yes, the walking dead are under the devil's influence, but they also sin on their own. But let's think about how these truths from Scripture should cause those of us who've been made alive in Christ to respond. Well, first of all, while being aware of the dangers of the world, the very real dangers, it should also cause us to have compassion for those who are among the walking dead. Not because they're trying to eat us and have us join them in their walking deadness, but simply because of the fact that they're dead, they are in most ways, think about this, folks, If you're dead, they are in most ways unaware of their total inability to respond to the truth. What can dead people respond to? Nothing, right? Again, this was the case with all of us apart from Christ. That doesn't mean that people apart from Christ can do no good whatsoever. It doesn't mean they're entirely evil. 
they still, even apart from Christ, bear a remnant of the image of God because all of us are, in fact, made in the image of God. But you know what? Not all of us are children of God. How many well-meaning politicians or public figures have you heard say the phrase, well, you know, we're all children of God? But Scripture tells us that's not true. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So who are the children of God? Those who received him. So unless we are in Christ, we are not children of God. Even though we do bear God's image, as his image bearers, we all have an inherent dignity. So being the walking dead does not mean that all humans are equally depraved. For most do not go near the depths to which they could go. As John Gerstner says, there is always room for deprovement. Nor does it mean that humans are not capable of any good or that there is no dignity in man, for there certainly is. He is the imperfect bearer of the divine image. Rather, the meaning is that no part of the human being, mind, emotions, heart, will, is unaffected by the fall. All of us are depraved totally. So what are we? We are dead, folks. We are dead apart from Christ. That's what this says. And dead people are unable to respond. So let's remember that next time we get frustrated that someone doesn't even begin to grasp a biblical truth about something. We feel like we're beating our head against the wall trying to talk to them and explain something. Well, they're dead, folks. They're dead apart from Christ. Well, where does that leave us? It leaves us in this passage of Scripture with verse 4. But God, but God, but God, are there two more encouraging words in Scripture? What a tremendous transitional phrase this is, designed to show us the amazingly, incredibly sharp contrast between genuine spiritual death on the one hand and real life. This, folks, is the big reversal. The first thing we read after this amazing grace about face that Paul gives us here with this phrase, but God, turning from the talk of the walking dead, is that God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. Make no mistake, folks, when we were dead, we deserved it. We deserved it. We deserve to be dead. We deserve to remain dead. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of, Scripture tells us, the great love with which he loved us. And then we read in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then by grace you have been saved. There's so much, folks. There's so much in these verses each individual verse we could dwell on literally for an entire sermon. But I'm committed not to have one of those three-hour African sermons that Jim described to us in his message last week that's a little short of three hours. So let's hit the highlights. <laughs> let's hit the highlights. For example, God's mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You think about that? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Instead of the consequences that you so richly deserve because of sin, mercy extends a pardon. Mercy is like the driver 
knowing that the consequences of, of uh, driving 75 in a 65 mile per hour zone is a ticket probably costing more than $100. That's that driver not receiving those consequences, not because the driver is worthy of a pardon, but maybe because of the sheer mercy of the officer who stopped him and he felt bad for you and he showed mercy on you and he just gave you a warning. The officer is under no obligation to remove those consequences, but because of mercy, perhaps he sometimes does. So too, God is under no obligation to remove the consequences of the sins we've committed or will commit. And in this life, actually, sometimes he doesn't, though sometimes he does in this life. But for eternal purposes, when we are in Christ, when he has made us alive together in Christ, in his mercy, he has chosen to remove those consequences for us. It wasn't just overlooking the consequences, though. Think about this. God's mercy is fuller and better than any example I could give you from the world because it's combined with his grace. In the case of God's mercy for us, it was a personal assumption of those consequences taking the wrath of God on himself through Christ for himself, for us, and for his glory. The closest thing I could think of using our analogy of the cop who stopped us, he might say, you know what, you owe this fine and I can't undo that, but I can pay it for you. That would be the closest thing. And even that only begins to really grasp what we're looking at this morning. Remember in verse 3, Paul tells us that we were by nature children of wrath. Essentially, that says we deserve the wrath of God. And again, we remember the intervention, the sacrifice from a source outside of ourselves because of his love, because of his mercy. That intervention on the cross of Jesus Christ and then a few days later, because of his empty tomb, we are made alive in him. Amazing, folks. These are amazing and marvelous truths. They are amazing and marvelous even today to our finite minds as in our human experience and through his word and illuminated by his Holy Spirit. We catch just a glimpse of his mercy. We don't begin to see it all. And we catch just a glimpse of his grace. We don't begin to see it all. Grace is getting something good that we don't deserve. While mercy is not getting what we do deserve. But here's the truth, folks. God gives both. He gives us life. We see both mercy and grace highlighted so significantly here in this passage of Scripture in these few verses. And we also catch a glimpse of God's purposes here. And perhaps even a glimpse of what might some of our activity in heaven look like. We see in verse 6, for example that we were raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But you might ask yourself, but why? But why? Well, the easy answer is certainly because of his love, and that's true. We saw that in verse 4 where we see that God's mercy was because of the great love with which he loved us. So certainly his mercy and grace are extended to us because of his love. But it's not just that love that is magnified here it is that, but it's so much more. It's the immeasurable riches of his grace. And, folks, it's his glory. It's his glory. Verse 7 
tells us why He raised us to life when we were the walking dead. It says, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is God's purpose. So that, so that He can show the immeasurable riches of His grace. Think of this. We will have an eternity to contemplate and think about and be exposed to and learn about the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Immeasurable certainly implies more than we can count or measure. Riches implies a lot too. But when you put these two ideas together, we see the immeasurable riches of God's grace will take eons for us to unpack. Imagine this scene, and please understand that this is just speculation, okay? But it's what I imagine, and I think it's kind of a sanctified imagination because it's based on this verse and some other verses in Scripture. But do understand that this is my speculation, okay? I imagine a massive theater in heaven. I imagine that as we go through time, one of the ways that God chooses to bring glory to himself is that he shows the immeasurable riches of His grace in my life and in your life and in the life of everyone who is spending eternity with Christ. Isn't that a neat thing to think about? One day in eternity, we'll see the movie marquee. And the movie title might be something like this. The immeasurable riches of God's grace in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then tomorrow is the life of former zombie Linda Steed. The immeasurable riches of her grace. Linda's not here, but we, I did this to her Wednesday night, so I picked on her Wednesday night at our house church when we talked about this. You know what? It doesn't matter if you're well-known. It's a name that we might have heard of, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're famous or not so famous, we will all marvel together and rejoice at the riches of His grace in the lives of of the redeemed. Isn't that a cool thing to think about? We'll see them replayed before our very eyes. If we imagine heaven as one big church service with everyone singing and praising God, well, you know, I think there'll be some of that, but I'm not sure that that's all heaven's going to be, folks. I imagine there'll be a lot of that because that's giving glory to God and that's what heaven's about. But I believe that a lot of the glorifying of our great and mighty God will be our spontaneous reaction to what we see here in verse 7. And we see in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So this is, this is my speculation of one way God might do that, but it, it just excites my imagination here and now about what we have to look forward to in heaven. When we see it, we will spontaneously fall to our knees and give glory to God for what we see. Wow, look what he did. God, it was so amazing what you did in Chuck's life and in John's life and in Chris's life and in Millard's life. You know, it's so amazing. We look at these things. And then we'll see that. We'll see that day after day. We'll see those things and we'll fall to our knees and worship the Lord and we'll anxiously await the next story revealing the immeasurable riches. Perhaps, for example, it'll be on Tuesday, the riches of God's grace in the life of Matthew Vincent. And we could put anybody's name up there, folks. Isn't that cool? Matthew, the ex-zombie. 
just in case we don't really get the grace theme that so permeates this passage of Scripture, Paul then brings us what is perhaps the best two-verse summary of the gospel in all of Scripture. This is such a wonderful summary that many of us have memorized this verse or these verses in years past, knowing that having this passage at the tips of our brain may help us if we're sharing the gospel with somebody personally. We read this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This passage tells us some key things that we really must understand about what it means and what it takes to be made alive in Christ. It tells us clearly, reiterating what Paul has already written in verse 5, it's grace that saves us. And then if we don't get that, if we don't understand grace, he tells us this is not of your own doing. And to further reemphasize this theme, he tells us it's a gift. So we see three different ways that he tries to highlight, you can't do this. This is something you have to sit back and receive. To further emphasize this theme, he tells us they're gift. When a member or a, fr- a friend or family member gave you a gift for Christmas a few weeks ago, chances are you didn't go to purchase it or it wouldn't be a gift, would it? You didn't make the gift yourself or it wouldn't be a gift. It wasn't of your own doing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we would learn to see that everything we have is a gift? Everything we have is a gift. We tend to think, well, this might be a gift, but these other things, these are things that I earn. And because of that, somehow I deserve it. My house, my car, my stuff. I worked hard to earn these things, and I was paid accordingly. But in reality, as Scripture tells us, folks, without God, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. And as Scripture tells us, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. So yes, I might have worked hard, I might have earned the money, but it's important for me to see that God gave me the ability to work. God provided the job. God provided the means for me to have the things that I have and enjoy. It's all from Him. It's all from Him. It's all a gift of His grace. And we must see that even more fully, especially in this realm of saving grace that we're looking at in this passage of Scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul tells us. Now I remember when I first memorized this verse several years ago, I wondered about the next part of the verse which says, and that not of yourselves. Some versions say, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God that no one can boast. In other words, we can't boast as if we're saved because of anything we've done. But I wondered about the word that, for example, in the New American Standard or this in the English Standard Version, was it referring to grace or was it referring to faith? In other words, that grace is not of yourselves or that faith is not of yourselves. Well, eventually, folks, I came to understand that it's both. It's both. Based on other passages of Scripture, because clearly grace is a gift and not of ourselves, but we also learn from Scripture that faith is a gift. But later, I learned that even though I came to what I believe is a correct understanding, of this passage, because I applied other passages of Scripture to my interpretation of this, there's another reason that it was correct that I didn't realize in those early days of having memorized this verse, and that's in the construction of the original language here. 
I think the uh, ESV study Bible says it clearly. It tells us the Greek pronoun this is neuter, while grace and faith are feminine. Accordingly, this points to the whole process of salvation by grace through faith as being the gift of God and not something that we can accomplish ourselves. This use of the neuter pronoun to take in the whole of a complex idea is quite common in Greek. Its use here makes it clear that faith, no less than grace, is a gift of God. Therefore, in every respect, this is not your own doing. Do you recognize how much this idea goes against the grain of our culture? This idea that we can contribute nothing to our salvation? After all, especially here in America, we can lift ourselves up on our own bootstraps, right? Self-sufficiency and everything. But we've learned here today that everyone without Christ is dead. Dead. Most people don't want to hear this today, so you don't hear this preached very often in many pulpits across America, just like you don't have zombies in too many sermons. But it's a crucial truth because Jesus' atoning death doesn't make any sense without it. It doesn't make any sense without it. The good news, think about this, the good news can't be good news until we accept the bad news. And the bad news is that man is radically dead and can be saved only by the radicalness of the resurrection. We would be remiss if we quit here because we see another important transition in this passage to verse 10. Maybe it's not quite as dramatic as what we saw back in verse 4, but God. But it's important nonetheless. Verse 10 begins with the word for, and right before the for we see this, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as we've seen, nothing we can do, no good works, no good words, nothing we've done or will do can cause us to boast and say, I earned this. I did this. I did this on my own. Perhaps Paul was aware that by talking about how radical God's grace is, in our minds we might think, well, nothing I can do will earn God's favor. I get that. So that's what I'll do. Nothing. So that's what I'll do. That's how I'll respond because what's the point? So Paul includes another powerful verse to complete the thought, clearly connecting it to the previous thought with the word for at the beginning of verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there we see the idea of walking again, right? In the first verse, we were the walking dead. Now we're alive, and we're walking with him, and we're walking in his good works that he prepared for us to do in advance. So Paul's thoughts flow through this 10-verse section of Ephesians from amazing depths we see in verses 1 through 3 where we see the zombie analogy. We're taken as low as we can go. We are dead. Then we see the big reverse, but God, and God takes us to amazing heights. He gives us life. We were dead, and he makes us alive. And not only that, he seats us with Christ, in Christ. And then we see the description of amazing grace in verses 8 and 9. And now in verse 10, we see God's amazing work. 
So we see amazing depth, we see amazing height, we see amazing grace, we see amazing work. The word workmanship here in the Greek is the word from which we get our English word poem. But the Greek literally means that which has been made. It could mean any kind of work of art. Yes, it could mean a poem, but it could be a statue, it could be a song, a painting. One scholar translates this verse as his work of art, his masterpiece. In other words, we are his work of art. We are his masterpiece. Think of it. You and I, folks, you and I, we are God's work of art, his masterpieces. Now, many of you know how much Barb and I love the Colorado mountains. Our basic youth will enjoy that part of God's handiwork just next week when they go on their ski trip. Being in the mountains is often a very deeply spiritual experience for me because I recognize in that beauty God's works of art, and it truly feeds my spirit. Yet Paul, who also recognized that we can see God in his creation, we read that in Romans, is saying something here that we cannot miss. God's chief work, God's masterpiece, is not inanimate creation, as beautiful and wonderful and God-created as those things are. Far beyond that, it is us. Folks, it's us. It's you and me. It's his ultimate creation. After all, think about this. We are the only part of his creation that Scripture says is made in his image and in his likeness. There's no other part of his creation that can claim that. That's, what's, that's part of what's wrong with the animal rights movement. Yes, we are stewards of God's creation, but they are not made in our image and likeness. That's what's wrong with part of the environmental movement. And again, we should be good stewards, but the things that God has made are not made in the... We are special, folks. We just are. That's what Scripture teaches us. You know what? Even the angels can't say this. Even the ain't think about you ever think about that? Even the angels can't say, you know, we're created in the image of God, because they're not. We are God's special creation. And we can go one step further and we can note this. We are twice created. We are twice created. After all, Scripture also tells us in Second Corinthians five seventeen, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the ultimate workmanship, the ultimate work of art of God is us. It's us. Though we were dead, he has made us alive in Christ. To quote Jonathan Edwards, the spiritual life which is reached in the work of conversion is a far greater and more glorious effect than mere being and life. God's most astounding creation is man made alive. A second time, born again. As the subject of two creations by Christ, we are his ultimate workmanship. We are his masterpieces. Thought of like this then, the good deeds, the work that we do, the works that we do are a sign that we are his workmanship. When we do it, it's a sign that we are his workmanship when we do good deeds. One scholar wrote, No one more wholeheartedly than the Apostle Paul repudiated good works as a ground of salvation. No one more strongly insisted on good works as a fruit of salvation. 
This truth is echoed by the prayers of the New Testament again and again. And we'll give you just a couple of examples. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And then we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in what? In every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. All of us in Christ, all of us here this morning who are in Christ, are God's workmanship. And as God's masterpieces, we have been given good works to do that were appointed before we even existed. Awesome thing to think about. And when we do them, God does give us the necessary power. He gives us a sense of the Holy Spirit's equipping. And these two will be a part of the display of his glorious riches of grace in eternity. Remember the movie. The works we do will be part of the display of the immeasurable riches of his grace. And we will, in fact, rejoice and glorify God because of it. Think of it. We'll see Linda Steed's work. And we will congratulate, not her, but we will glorify God because God created those good works and equipped Linda to do them. We'll see Mike Bros. We'll see James Manchester and others loving and serving the mentally ill. And we'll glorify God who created those deeds before the beginning of time for Mike and James to do. We'll see Carl and Doris Eason sacrificially giving to support one of our missionaries. And then one of those missionaries brings someone into the kingdom. And God will be glorified. We'll glorify God. We won't say, hey, Carl and Doris, good job. We'll glorify God. Because we'll see this connection between the Eason's giving and a soul now present with all the saints in eternity. Amen? All glory to God for His amazing grace, folks. All glory to God for His zombie cure that makes us from the walking dead into those who are walking in newness of life. Isn't that the phrase we use when we baptize somebody? Buried with Him and raised to newness of life. Heavenly Father, we're grateful people. We're grateful, Lord God, for Your amazing grace, the immeasurable riches of Your grace. We're grateful, Father God, that when we were dead, You made us alive together in Christ. Heavenly Father, help these truths as we ponder them, as we meditate on them, as we think through these things. Help these truths shape us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. Help these truths, Father, motivate us to do what it says in verse 10, to do these good works that you prepared in advance for us to do, Heavenly Father. May they rest on your grace and on your mercy and the very fact that we are twice created. We are created in your image and then we are born again and a new creation when we are made from dead flesh into alive saints to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for these marvelous truths. Father, help us to never take these truths for granted and to look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith, we pray in Jesus' name.